The views expressed on this podcast are those of the participants, not of Rogers News. How can the financial industry keep 1.5 alive? Listen to my chat with Mark Carney, the UN Special Envoy on Climate, to find out. Welcome to the road to COP26, our exchange podcast series ahead of the mega climate conference taking place in Glasgow next month. I'm Rob Cox, the global editor of Breaking Views, the financial commentary arm of Reuters, and I'm coming to you from Rome, Italy this week. Well, in financial circles, Mark Carney needs no introduction. He's a former governor of the Bank of England, a job he did for his native Canada before that. And before that, he was a Goldman Sachs banker. But it's his current work as the UN's Special Envoy on Climate Action and Finance that's perhaps of most interest in the run-up to COP. Mark has been corralling together the world's largest banks, asset managers, and insurers as part of what's called the Glasgow Financial Alliance for Net Zero, GFANS for short. The basic idea is to get the biggest financial institutions in the world, representing more than 90 trillion of assets, to agree on ways to accelerate the transition to net zero emissions by 2050 at the latest. It's not easy. The day we spoke, Mark received a letter from a bunch of groups arguing that banks and the G-fans are not taking a strong enough line on ending the financing of companies in the hydrocarbons industry. Mark counsels patience. The banks in his group, which as of Friday includes JP Morgan, the largest U.S. bank, will over the next 18 months release five-year decarbonization plans sector by sector. You don't develop those overnight. You do it properly, he told me. He also thinks multilateral development banks like the IMF, much in the news, and World Bank have a lot to play. They need to, quote, up their ambition in terms of the financing provided for climate-related projects, Mark says. Anyway, without further ado, my chat with Mark Carney. Mark, great to see you. I imagine you are super busy. So let me get straight to the point. The world is convening in Glasgow, Scotland, in a couple of weeks for the COP26. Just give us a, an understanding of what we can expect to come out of this in terms of carbon cutting measures by the financial and corporate sectors in particular. Yeah, well, the first, uh, Rob, thanks for having me on. I think the first thing to say is the core objective of uh, COP26 is to keep 1.5 degrees alive, keep 1.5 alive. In other words, have countries show up with ambitious, what are called NDCs, but basically country climate strategies uh, in order to decarbonize their economies. Um, And that the add up of all of those uh, is within sight of that one and a half degree uh, target. We've made a lot of progress. I just headline when the UK uh, with Italy took up the presidency last year, Less than a third of uh, global emissions were under net zero objectives. Now it's over three quarters uh, or under, you know, so big moves, but we need more between now and at COP in order to keep that 1.5 alive. Now within that context, to get to your question, that net zero as an objective is becoming an organizing principle for uh, finance. Um, and that for companies and therefore for finance. So, and we've got more than 3000 companies that have science-based uh, targets. I personally think that net zero plans or objectives and plans will become the norm in the next uh, few years. And on top of that, we have the financial sector moving uh, to positions so they can finance the scale of decarbonization. We'll get into that maybe in a bit more detail, but the, the headline, just to recap, we want ambition from countries and from the side of finance, we want to have a system in place where every decision takes climate change into account that means a lot of changes to the plumbing of the system, but also that there's money available of a scale uh, that can meet the uh, 100 billion, 100 trillion, sorry, plus a decarbonization need. You've put together the Glasgow Financial Alliance for Net Zero, which is basically 
a lot of banks, not everyone, but almost everybody out there is, is a member of this. And I imagine those who aren't out there join up at some point. But some folks out there, I think just today, there was a group of, of climate change groups that basically said, you guys need to do more. They addressed the letter to you saying um, that financial institutions who have signed up to GFANS are still backing fossil fuels. How do you, how do you frame that? How do you look at that? Have they got a point or is this, is this the, what you're talking about and trying to get them to do more, the banks? To do more? Yeah. Well, first thing, let's be clear what GFANS is. It, it is banks, but it's much more than banks. It's uh, major asset owners, uh, the world's largest asset managers. It's um, over 300 financial firms, private financial firms in over 40 countries. It's 9090 trillion of uh, balance sheet. So it's approaching the levels of the financing we need over the next three decades, getting that uh, commitment in place at the start uh, for it to be managed in net zero. It is anchored. This isn't, these aren't vague uh, commitments. Um, they are commitments that are anchored in the UN's race to zero. There's annual reporting. There's, for example, for the banks, they'll release over the course of uh, the next uh, 18 months, uh, five-year decarbonization plans by sector. So quite granular strategies. You don't develop those overnight. You do it, you do it properly. Uh, the asset managers, the leading asset managers, the first founders are going to be releasing their strategies uh, just before COP uh, in the course of the next few weeks. So it is quite uh, detailed and substantive, and it's about action as well as commitment. What will come out at COP is uh, a detailed progress report from Chiefs fans of all of the work streams uh, that are underway, where they stand and where they're going. This is and this is an organization that was put in place uh, in April at the Biden summit. Uh, so it's moving at pace. In fact, we're talking on a day where I just got off Zoom uh, with uh, all the CEOs of the steering committee uh, going through all those work plans, call to action to governments. And very importantly, and this loops back to your first question, what to expect from COP, how we can use that balance sheet to mobilize large scale flows to emerging developing economies, and you referenced you know, some commentary today, one of the points is about Indigenous peoples. Well, exactly. That's exactly right. And the way to uh, support Indigenous groups uh, around the world is to ensure that their, their views and needs are incorporated in these flows of financing. And that's exactly what we're doing. And that will be very obvious in Glasgow. How do you look at what's going on in the you know oil and gas prices going up and electricity price? What's happening in the energy markets? Is that good, bad, Indifferent. What does it do to the world's uh, efforts to try to decarbonize? Because as you've seen, all of a sudden, a bunch of countries are like, oh, no, we don't have enough electricity. We've got to start burning more coal and that kind of thing. Well, I look at it. I look at it two ways. One, I look at it as a former central banker. You can you know, only take me so far from it. Uh, and it just reinforces something we're seeing across supply chains around the world. It's easier to shut down economies than it is to restart them. Um, and there's some loss of supply and there's frictions that come from that. And that's part of what we're seeing absolutely in the energy market. Second point, uh, and more to the point, is uh, we're at the start of a major transition. And it is the transition, stupid, to channel my inner uh, James Carvel. And so that's about rising, uh, quite rapid increases in renewable and uh, low and no carbon uh, energy sources. I mean, we need to electrify everything we can and make electricity uh, zero carbon. Uh, but in parallel to that, is transitioning existing energy systems at a pace and scale and sequencing that's uh, consistent with the energy system on which all can rely. Ultimately, and you know that what what that underscores for me and for others is the importance of looking at the transition in the round, 
not thinking, and nobody seriously involved in this thinks you can just flip a switch from one to the other uh, because it takes time to ramp up uh, the new energy sources. But, and here's a key but, the world has far too much proven reserves of coal, gas, and oil for the carbon budget. That's what that is by definition stranded assets. It's on mm -hmm. the orders of magnitude to a half to three quarters of proven reserves of those resources. So it is about developing those and using those as part of a transition strategy. But make no mistake, if we are going to succeed, and this is simple climate physics, if we're going to succeed, there are going to be very large uh, reserves of uh, fossil fuels that are stranded. Stuck underneath the ground forever. Yeah. But is there, now just on a bit, another question, is there a danger that the West in general is, is too distracted, divided by things like COVID vaccinations, Afghanistan, nuclear submarine sales to Australia, et cetera. Are you worried that to get everyone to get around the table and to agree on these extraordinarily important decisions, they're squabbling about other things that might make it difficult? Well, um, look, uh, it's, uh, I, I guess, a couple of things that work in our favor for COP. Uh, the first is um, one of the lessons of COVID is to take science seriously. Um, uh, secondly, is to build resilient importance of resilience in economies and the importance of sustainability. All of those point in one direction with respect to climate. Secondly, actually, when you look at what are credible and impactful economic strategies coming out of this crisis, once we get off of the or once we move past the easy bit, which is just turning the economies back on uh, and the initial uh, boost you get from that, uh, this is going to have to be a, uh, an investment led uh, recovery uh, and expansion. And uh, the investment boom, and I underscore the investment boom, is in this transition to sustainability. I mean, we're talking ramping up to two points of GDP, two percentage points of GDP of additional investment by the middle of this century. So this is why it's and, and with big job and other multipliers that come from that. So all of that pushes in the same direction. I think that, um, you know, the West is, if, if I could use that term and the terms, you know, becoming more archaic, but um, uh, very focused as well on uh, the competitiveness aspects of this. And uh, I'll quote uh, Prime Minister Johnson the other day at uh, the UN made the point that uh, the great powers will be green powers, um, of the great powers future will be green powers. And that's right. Um, and uh, it's, it's a lesson that uh, I think uh, the Chinese uh, very much understand. Uh, and their core medium-term economic strategy embodies. He also cited Kermit the Frog. I don't know if you saw that. Uh, he's got amazing range. Yes. <laughs> what What do rich countries like Canada and the United States do, do need to do more of to encourage emerging economies to more aggressively bypass hydrocarbons? Well, I think what let, let me let me speak directly to the private you know private financial sector. What we're doing, I think, what we need to do uh, and what we're pushing for COP is to develop a coherent approach across those public pools of money. There's a, those who follow this closely will know that one of the key deliverables, so to speak, for COP is the $100 billion of effectively donor money uh, from advanced economies to developing and emerging economies uh, through various channels. Well, we need to make sure that that, that 100 billion catalyzes much bigger sums uh, because ultimately this is all measured in terms of trillions. And, and in order to do that, one of the things we're putting together is a, is a country platform approach. So you have coordinated donor financing, uh, that it's, it's so-called blended financing. So in other words, that 
takes on some risk that then leverages private capital. So you get a lot more private capital on top of that. And then that we also take advantage of the fact that there is 90 trillion, nine zero trillion of balance sheet that's sitting there saying, looking, I need net zero aligned assets, not immediately net zero, but assets that are moving that direction. And so when I look anywhere, including an emerging and developing world, show me those types of assets uh, and I've got the capital for it. Uh, and having that, that consistent approach, both can get things uh, financed, but also can up ambition uh, of countries because they know that uh, the money is there. That's, that, that's at the heart, Rob, I think, of what we need to yeah. do. Where do multilateral institutions like uh, the IMF and the World Bank uh, stand? I mean, what more can yeah. they do to help to bring private money into the transition? Well, I think, uh, so let me start with the IMF, and the IMF is doing a few important things. One of them is it's embedding climate risk management in their annual reviews of whether it's Canada or Chad uh, is to you know, ensure that the authorities are looking at these issues and the financial institutions are prepared to manage them. And that helps to ensure that capital is allocated, you know, flows to the solutions um, and, and, and avoids the problem. So that's the first thing they're doing. And that, that, that's a big deal. It sounds archaic, but it's, it's a big deal. The second thing that, of course, the IMF's doing is with the SDR allocation, the $650 billion for that. And there are proposals, and I, I personally would hope that they gain traction and are implemented, uh, to recycle um, some of that money from the uh, so-called advanced economies for uh, climate-related, you know, broadly speaking, uh, investment in the emerging uh, developing world. Um, so that's the other thing they can do. Now, I think the multilateral development banks, World Bank, others, what they need to do is really up their ambition in terms of the scale of financing. This, this needs to be, to be candid, Rob, if you hear about initiatives in climate, and Bill Gates makes this point in terms of investment in technologies. He says, he won't, uh, Breakthrough Energy won't invest in technologies that don't have the prospect of reducing at least 1% of global emissions, you know, that ad- additivity. In climate finance, if something's not going to scale to 100 billion a year in the medium term, it's not interesting. It's, you know, it's niche. That's how big the numbers are. So I think the MDBs need to be thinking in those terms, designing programs that are scalable, uh, that can reach those levels, taking risks that are that they should take on that are not uh, uh, idiosyncratic to specific projects, but are more generalizable. Now, we will be coming out at COP uh, as GFANS with an approach around this, and it's, you know, it's increasingly discussed in the public domain, but we'll, we'll be making some uh, explicit uh, proposals for COP uh, for that, and, and hopefully they'll, uh, we'll, we'll get traction with it. Okay, that'll be interesting. Um, technology, is there anything in particular, I've been asking everybody as part of the Road to COP series, you know, is there something out there that excites you that you think could, I mean, could be a game changer or a, a kind of game changer? Well, look, I think a couple of things, I will say a couple of things that maybe haven't always been said. I think most of us gravitate towards uh, the hydrogen economy uh, and direct air capture as being critical uh, elements, uh, direct air carbon capture uh, and BECS, um, you know, bioenergy uh, uh, carbon capture. Uh, and I, I, would, I would join myself with those on the first point. Secondly, I do think that, uh, and I have a tiny window into it, but the whole ecosystem, not ecosystem, the data system around climate is hugely important. So the optimization of HVAC in uh, commercial real estate, something we at Brookfield look at a lot. We own a lot of commercial real estate. So uh, continuing to optimize how it's used, you can get big savings out of existing plant. And these are the kind of things we need to do. But also, you know, the system is going to be built. If you want a, a merger, if you will, of 
the world of NFTs and tokenization of the economy, uh, blockchain uh, and climate, you see it in tracking electrons, tracking green electrons, tracking carbon, and those systems are being put in place. That is technology that will help us manage it down. Now, let me finish up by going on technology, the other end of the spectrum, which is on natural climate solutions. I mean, we are building for COP a market for carbon offsets. This is for all the headlines, it's a billion dollars a year market. Uh, it's fragmented. There's lots of issues with it at present. This can rapidly scale properly structured to 100 to 150 billion a year. Um, we've got the blueprint for it. We've got the governing body with major emerging economies uh, and NGOs as part of that, as well as market participants in place as of last week. Singapore and London are stepping up to host the market. China's engaged with this market. This has real potential to ramp. And you know, natural climate solutions, which you know, I'll simplify for reforestation as an example. You know, this is potentially 10% of the carbon budget that we're going to save this decade. Um, and very importantly, it meets that $100 billion test. It's that threshold test. And it's, yeah, and it's sustainable. And it's flow, and it helps with biodiversity. It helps with Indigenous people as well. And it flows from, uh, you know, basically uh, companies in advanced economies who are managing to net zero to projects in the emerging and developing world. So it it's consistent with reinforcing uh, climate effort. And where do you stand on nuclear, for instance? I saw the IPCC report in August was was quite positive or, or arguing that it was going to be almost impossible. Well, I don't, uh, you know, I, I, I don't see, a, a, I have not seen any credible uh, transition uh, pathway, net zero pathway that does not include a role for nuclear, given just first point, the existing stock of nuclear uh, and, and its role in baseload. I mean, this is one of the issues with with managing energy systems is baseload. Uh, secondly, uh, there are, look, SMRs are an interesting technology. Uh, I, I probably should disclose that we have um, at Brookfield have some exposure to that uh, or, or some investments in that. And it's possible that they will be part of uh, part of the solution. You know, the key thing with climate, obviously, is always the end. It's potentially part of the solution or part of the solution. There's no, you know, there is no cold fusion, uh, at least uh, that I'm aware of, uh, answer that's going to solve everything. Right. I mean, before we go, just you've been doing this now for for a year, pretty much, um, putting together various climate change efforts. Have you become more or less optimistic about the ability to, to go for the 1.5, to keep the 1.5 alive, as you say? Well, it's a, um, you know, there, there's competing factors, to be honest, Rob. Uh, we've left this very late. And so uh, the carbon budget is very constrained, which is why we have to throw everything at it, uh, why we need a carbon offset market, why we need multiple technologies, why we need so many financial institutions, et cetera. Secondly, it's uh, more optimistically, countries are moving, I uh, gave you the numbers earlier, and very much the private sector is moving. This is becoming, you know, I, I think it's clear, it's a, it's a core strategic issue for every financial institution, every company. I guess the, to finish on an optimistic note, I feel more optimistic because when you have, you know, literally hundreds of thousands of individuals, hundreds of, you know, or tens of trillions of dollars looking at a problem, ways are going to be found to solve it and to move it forward. And if I say one last thing, and I know from our own experience, if, if something's going to cost $100 trillion over the next 30 years, I think there's some people who are going to figure out a way to 
shave off a couple of percentage points because <laughs> a couple of trillion is a big number and maybe more in quantum. I don't know exactly how. The scale of this is so huge. And I do think it's the biggest commercial opportunity now. And as it should be, if you're solving an existential risk, uh, you're creating tremendous value. All right. Well, thanks a lot, Mark. I guess we'll see you in Glasgow, Scotland. I look forward to it. We'll see you there, Rob. That's our show for the week. Stay tuned for another edition of the Exchange Road to Cop series. Thanks to our producer, Katrina Hamlin, in Hong Kong, and to you, dear listener, for tuning in. Subscribe to The Exchange and our sister podcast, The Views Room, on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you go to get your high-quality podcasts. Check us out every day at breakmuse.com. Ciao.